morning. God bless you, you brave souls, for weathering the storm this morning. It's so good to see you here, and it's so good to be here. Several years ago, seminary professor Fred Craddock shared a story about him and his wife and a time that they were on vacation in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is where they often vacationed. This particular evening, they're at one of their favorite restaurants, and they notice an older, distinguished-looking man making his way from table to table, spending a little bit of time with each one of the patrons at this restaurant. And sure enough, this gray-haired man made his way to their table, and that's where we're introduced to their conversation. Where are you folks from? He asked politely. I replied, Oklahoma. Great place to live, I hear, although I've never been there. What do you do for a living? I teach homiletics at the Graduate Seminary of Phillips University. Well, since you teach preachers, I have a story that I want to share with you. And with that, he pulled up a chair and sat down at the table with me and my wife. The man stuck out his hand. I'm Ben Hooper. Now let me stop right there, tell you who Ben Hooper is. According to Fred Craddock, who's telling the story, the state of Tennessee, over its history, has elected two governors that were born illegitimate children or fatherless, Ben Hooper being one of those. The man stuck out his hand. I'm Ben Hooper. I was born not far from here across the mountain, My mother wasn't married when I was born, so I've had a hard time growing up. When I started to school, my classmates had a name for me, and it wasn't a very nice name. I used to go off by myself at recess and during lunchtime because of the taunts of the playmates, which cut and wounded so deeply, even as a little boy. What was worse was going downtown on Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through you. It was the scorn of being born without a father. When I was about 12 years old, a new pastor came to our church. I would always go in late and slip out early to avoid the glances, but one day the pastor said the benediction so fast I got caught and I had to walk out with the crowd. I could feel every eye in the church on me. Just about the time I got to the door, I felt a big hand on my shoulder. I looked up and the pastor was looking right at me. Who are you, son? I said, nothing. Whose boy are you? I felt a weight come up on me and it was like a big black cloud. Oh no, is even the preacher going to put me down? But as he looked at me, studying my face, he began to smile, a big smile of recognition. Wait a minute, he said, I know who you are. You're God's boy. I see the resemblance. You're God's son. With that, He slapped me across the rump and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. 
Go and claim it. The old man looked across the table at me and said, that was the most important single sentence that anyone has ever said to me in my entire life. And with that, he smiled, shook our hand, and moved on to another table to greet old friends. So this morning, the motive, the purpose, the prayer, it's really very simple. The prayer is to simply invite you, to simply encourage you, to remember your spiritual heritage, to remember the family that you were born again into, to remember the Father that you were spiritually begotten by. And my prayer is that we're going to explore how that truth may affect you and I on a day-to-day basis as we're about God's business. I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John chapter 5, please. John chapter 5. As I begin reading in verse 16. We're going to read verses 16 through 30. John chapter 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show them, show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I 
can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we are very, very prayerful this morning that God, You would allow us to experience You. This morning, would You be a Father to us? Would You teach us? Would You discipline us? Would You challenge us? Would You speak to us, God? Would You see where we are? Would You see what our needs are? Our spiritual needs? Those things that may be lingering or dominating or lording over our hearts, God? Whether they may even be religious things, God, allow us to see, know, feel, experience the love of a mighty, grand, holy Father. We would ask that You would do this ultimately, God, for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, you read a passage like this and you think, wow, this is a passage that probably needs about two or three weeks of just us exploring in order to do it justice. But we do want to try to get through the Gospel of John, so we're going to linger in the beginnings of the Gospel of, or of this passage. And I want to encourage you on your own to read through and study out the content of what Jesus is saying here. Today we're going to talk about a call to work and a method to work Jesus is working. His life is defined by working. And we want to talk about that, but the first thing that I want to do this morning is I want to explore right off the bat, because I think it's that relevant, I want to extract Jesus' claim, one of His main claims as relates to the Gospel. I want to extract it, I want to exalt it, I want to highlight it, I want it to be set apart I think it's that worthy, and I think the Gospel demands it. Jesus makes a relational statement regarding Him and the Father. And He makes a statement that men have grappled with and will continue to grapple with and over throughout the course of human history. And the men who have made peace with Jesus' claim In this passage, they are men who have inherited eternal life. And those who have rebelled against the claim that Jesus makes in this passage, they are men who have received eternal judgment and the very wrath of God rests upon them. Jesus is making a grand claim in this passage that is the core of the Gospel. And Jesus is stating so much more than unity. Although the unity that exists between the Father and the Son is perfect unity. 
He's making a claim that goes way beyond concession or submission, even though the Savior is a grand example of what submission to the Father looks like. You see, the Savior's claim is a claim of equality. It's a claim that He and the Father are one, and it is a claim that is central to the reality of the Gospel message itself. The claim that God has become man. It takes the holiness of God to be an atonement for man's sin, and it takes a man to be a substitution for man. That's his claim. Verse 19, we see a part of that. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is not a matter of Jesus seeking to imitate the Father. This is the impossibility that exists for the Son to act in any way independent of the Father. One can do absolutely nothing apart from the other. This is not a matter of mere sentiment. This is not like me saying I'm incomplete without my wife. This is the fullness that exists in the fellowship of the Trinity. What one person of the Trinity does is in full fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. I want to establish that as an overarching truth as we move forward. Why? I need to make the point that the relationship between the Father and the Son is beautiful. It is grand. It is holy and it is full of mystery. And beloved, it is set apart from us. There are some things that we have to adore from a distance. And this relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is one of those things. We cannot tread into the waters of equality with God, but beloved, we can dive into the waters of intimacy with God. That's our goal this morning, okay? We can learn some principles from this relationship that exists between the Father and the Son that we can apply to our lives. We're going to look briefly at two principles this morning. First we're going to look at a disciple's motivation to work. Secondly, we're going to look at a disciple's moment to work. Let's reread starting in verse 16 through 18. As we look at a disciple's motivation to work. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them. He's, he's offering a defense. Jesus answers them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. I probably would think that you would be aware of the emphasis that I have placed on Jesus' claim that God is His Father. Not that God is His Creator, His Master, His Deity, although God is those things, but His claim is that God is my Father. And that's a huge claim for Jesus to make during this time. 
It's very acceptable for the Savior to say God is our Father corporately. It's kind of like the Jews gathering together and talking about their father Abraham. But when Jesus speaks of God as my Father, He is making the claim that He has a very deep, real, intimate, personal relationship with God. And that is a reality that the Jews are not ready to make peace with yet. They've only heard the voice of the prophets all of their lives. And perhaps, just perhaps, this is a concept that maybe we're not completely comfortable with yet either. Perhaps this is a concept that we have overlooked through the course of our Christianity. Perhaps this is a concept that we have sidestepped in relation to our Christianity as we rest in things like our religion. But I want to assure you it is most crucial in the context of a relationship, specifically a discipleship relationship. We use that word with much intention this morning. Do you know God as your Father? Your Father. Do you know Him that way? Packer states, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and different from the old, Everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. Now, I believe that I have defined what a disciple is in this setting many times. A disciple is a student, a learner, a pupil who sits under the teaching of their instructor or their master with the intention of conforming to that teaching and making it their way of life. But I believe that although that is an accurate definition of what a disciple is, I am confronted with a great fear. And my fear is that on its own, although it may be very accurate and although it may be very instructive, I believe that on its own, it can be so void of passion. I believe it can be so void of possession, me claiming that truth for myself. My fear is that on its own, it is empty of intimacy, therefore it leaves a gaping relational void in our very hearts. I guess, more importantly, my fear is that that definition of a disciple on its own, what it's most void of, is what the Holy Spirit reveals to us, what the Holy Spirit reveals about us, and what the Holy Spirit reveals about God's role over us when we're called into a relationship, a discipleship relationship, that means that we're following God. Listen, beloved. None of the disciples left their lives. 
None of the disciples left their livelihoods. None of the disciples left their families behind because they thought they had something to bring to the table. A disciple immediately leaves the desires of this life because at that moment, Christ exposes and reveals in them their greatest need. In other words, we are not disciples of Christ or followers of Christ primarily because of what it is that we're bringing to the table or what it is that we can do for Christ. We are primarily disciples and followers of Christ because of the great need that we have that Christ has exposed to us when Peter fell down to his knees and said, O Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinner. It is obvious what was exposed at that moment, and what was exposed at that moment was his greatest need. The woman at the well was just simply beaten down with the harshness of life. And she needed at that moment to know that there was a glimpse of hope somewhere. We're kind of just like the disciples were. The disciples were angry. They needed to know that there was peace. They were afraid. They were hurt. They were scared. And they needed to know that they could be protected. Their greatest need is the same as our greatest need, whether they knew it or not at the moment, whether we know it or not at the present. Our greatest need, beloved, is to be fathered by God. Do you see that? Do you see that we all, at that moment of despair, that we all... We're all confronted with that sense that we are left alone to ourselves in that moment of spiritual need, in that moment of spiritual despair and chaos and confusion and hopelessness. Do you see that we are at that point confronted with the greatest need and the reality that we are fatherless? All men at that point are fatherless men. I encourage you greatly, acknowledge your earthly father. Acknowledge his care for you. Acknowledge his covering over you. Acknowledge the great things that he's done. Acknowledge the way that he has invested in you. Acknowledge and respect the way that he's loved you. Acknowledge and respect the way that He has provided for you, but be confronted with the reality that He is a man that is peppered with grand limitations because all men are fatherless or unprotected until they are fathered or begotten by God spiritually. All men. Christ exposes our greatest need when He looks to God, not as Creator, not as deity, but as a father. He exposes our greatest need. Why? Because first, a father in the Greek language is defined as of a teacher. A father is defined as of a teacher. And Jesus acknowledges that about God the Father in verse 20 when he says this. Read it with me, please. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. 
And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. Emphasis, of course, on the word show. The word show is from a Greek word that means to show by words. To teach. To direct. The stage is being set for discipleship. God's the teacher, you're the student. God instructs you, listen. So listen, get your paper and your pencil and your pen and your your computer and get ready to sit down and listen and go through the laborious and vigorous exercise and the stoic exercise of learning. That's your role. Now, of course, I say that with a large hint of sarcasm. But the reality is we can view that type of relationship like that, I think, can't we? And maybe one of the reasons that we can view that type of relationship like that is because maybe we've had a male figure in our lives and they have so distorted what fatherhood really looks like and what the experience of fatherhood should really feel like. If that would be the case for you, I would encourage you to take the counsel of Mary Cassian, who states in her book, Biblical Womanhood, God is Father. And He alone defines what true fatherhood means. Listen to that. He alone defines what true fatherhood means. Not past experiences. Not past pains. Not past confrontations. Misunderstanding. His person, His presence, now, alone, defines what fatherhood is. How tragic and foolish and how very arrogant of us to shy away from this name Father because some human males are poor examples of fatherhood or because our culture regards a God named Father as oppressive and patriarchal. Christ orients us to the reality of fatherhood, and He does that by establishing the driving force behind the relationship, the driving force behind Christian joy, the driving force behind any type of Christian work whatsoever. And He does that in verse 20 when He says, the Father loves the Son. That precedes the work. The Father loves the Son. The result of the Father loving the Son is that the Father shows the Son or the Father teaches the Son. And the result of God the Father, the result of His ongoing investment into your life is He teaches you, He teaches you, He teaches you, and He infects your will to the point that Jesus says in verse 30, I have no will of my own. Why? Because the Father loves me with such a great love that He's continuing to invest Himself into me. Do you notice the emphasis is on the fact that the Father loves the Son and not on the fact that the Son loves the Father? Now, this is one of those times where we adore the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son from a distance. Specifically, what I mean is we are so unlike the Son in the sense that He will always love the Father too. The Father will always love the Son, but the Son will always love the Father as well, which is so unlike us, but yet the principle remains. 
The principle that the greatest motivation for Christian life, the greatest motivation for Christian joy, the greatest, mo- greatest motivation for Christian work is found in the fact that the Father loves us because of the finished work of Christ, even when we are unloving toward the Father. The motivation is God loves us, not we love God. Motivation behind any type of Christian consistency whatsoever will never be primarily our love for God. I'm going to the nations because I love God. I'm standing up here today because I love God. I'm faithful to whatever because I love God. Well, what do you do, beloved, when your love for God, like any other feeling or emotion or affection, begins to wane? What do you do then? Our love is fickle. Our love is weak. And to be quite frank, our love is indeed inconsistent. The motivation behind any type of Christian work any type of Christian consistency is found in the fact that God is pleased to love us as a father because of the finished work of Christ. If that were not true, I would not be engaged in Christian ministry. If my presence here was hinging on my affections for the Savior, I wouldn't be here a lot of times. If that were true, and that were the case, I don't think that there would be many people in this room that could have the joy and the privilege of raising up holy hands because we would be too busy hanging our heads in shame. So hear me say, the revelation of God loving us the revelation of God as a loving Father, it is indeed our greatest need. But we need to know something. We need to know that that cannot come from our knowledge alone. We will not be changed by opening up the Bible and reading God loves us if God does not couple that truth with the experience of giving us His love. Paul states in Romans 5.5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The New Living Translation of Romans 5.5 says, and this hope, what hope? The hope of enduring persecution keeping Romans 5, 5 in context. The hope of godliness, the hope of faith, the hope of good character, this hope, the hope of our justification, this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. I chose the New Living Translation because I think it points to the reality that the love that resides in us, we need to know, is not the love that we have for God. The love that resides in us is the love that God has for us. 
God has deposited a revelation of His love as a Father into the hearts of His people. It is not just a knowledge that God loves me, it is the fact that God is loving me in the midst of my apathy. It's the fact that God is loving me in the midst of my self-centeredness. And that reality begins at the cross when we are told, as Paul goes on in Romans 5, that God demonstrates, present tense, His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did something in the past that deposited love into our hearts in the present. Do you know Him as your Father? Do you know Him? Listen, I know you know Him as a grand theologian. I know that you know Him as Lord of all creation and earth. But do you know Him as your Father? What does it mean if we don't? Well, it means that we're, we're in great need. But what's the need? The need, we can't, we can't drum up being convinced that God loves us. We need something. John Piper states, This is why we need revival, and this is what revival is. Revival is not first the conversion of the lost. Revival is first the answer to Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3.5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. When the Lord takes hold of the hearts of His people and directs them into the love of God, they experience the outpouring of the love of God through the Holy Spirit. When that happens to lots of people in the same place at the same time, we call it revival. Isn't that so relevant to the need that took place in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus said, go wait, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses in the following places. You see, I believe that way before the Holy Spirit is a Spirit that enables us to go do, the Holy Spirit is the power behind how we know that God loves us and how we reciprocate that love to other people. Do you know God is your Father? If not, we need the Holy Spirit's help because it's His work. So that needs to be our plea. Let's not only talk about a disciple's um, movement, but let's talk about a disciple's moment to work, or a disciple's motivation. Now let's talk about a disciple's moment to work. Let's read verse 16, please. Verse 16 reads this way. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now and I am working. What are the things that the Savior was doing on the Sabbath? Well, He was healing a man who had been sick for a long time. 38 years to be exact. And it just happened to be the Sabbath day that Jesus healed him. Sabbath keeping was a huge deal in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they implemented a system of Sabbath laws 
that consisted of 39 different categories of forbidden activities. Not 39 things, but 39 different categories. The Savior's reply exposes how they've distorted religion. And we're going to talk about that more deeply in just a moment. But He exposes that when He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus' defense is that the Father is working. Jesus' defense is the Father is working on the Sabbath. Now, we know that on the seventh day God rested, but that word rested means that He ceased His working of creation. He ceased His work of creation because God had accomplished every single thing that He had set out to do. God recognized that it was good, therefore He rested in the goodness and the glory of His completed work. Listen, beloved, that is the purpose of our Sabbath. To rest in the completed work of God, perhaps the work of God in many things, but for us specifically, the completed work of our salvation. Now, maybe the problem in our thinking could be that that is the only purpose of our Sabbath. Maybe a problem could be in our thinking that that is the only purpose of our Christianity. We have to note, God has never stopped working. God has never stopped working. Did He rest? Yes. Did He retreat? No. God has never stopped His providential care in relation to governing the affairs of the world. God has never stopped extending mercy to the unjust as well as the just. God has never stopped extending grace to sinners or extending greater grace to saints as He continues to work in their lives. All of which I believe is Jesus' main point. If Jesus was breaking the Sabbath through the work of extending grace to a man, then the Father was breaking the Sabbath by the work and through the work of calling that man to Himself. If Jesus was breaking the Sabbath through the work of healing a man, then listen, then God the Father is breaking the Sabbath by causing the sun to shine and the rain to fall because it is all the work of God. But not only that, God's work is so radical because it involves sinners. God stepped out of His completed work that was once beautiful and holy and just and right because of man's sin condition and He stepped into a world that was violent and angry and wrathful and vengeful and hateful. He stepped into that world and He began to work and is working until now in order that all men, those that He's called, will believe. What does that mean for us? As we look to God who works. seems as if Christ is establishing that the Gospel needs to be placed into the reality of our religion. I think that what this simply means to us, beloved, is that we need to redefine what our religion really is and what religion really means. And I say redefine, yes, religion. It may sound very spiritual. It may even sound cool to make statements or to think, or perhaps like I may have even said in the past, that Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. Or 
Yes, I love Christ, but I hate religion. Regardless of what we think, regardless of how that may sound, I'm tempted to think it's very bad theology. And the reason that I'm tempted to think that is because James, the author of the book of James, who was under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he loved religion as long as it was undefiled. He loved religion. Religion is my acts of worship. Religion is my external responses to God, should be, to what God is doing internally in my life and in my heart. James states in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, for example, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. This isn't a matter of don't be religious. It's a matter of redefine your religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If we're not careful, beloved, and I just want to issue a very brief loving warning, if we're not careful, careful, pure religion, which means a religion that involves extending ourselves to other people, can easily and quickly become a lost religion, can quickly become a defiled religion. Listen, beloved. Pure religion can quickly become lost in our pursuits of coming and going back and forth to church and withdrawing into our Christianity and withdrawing into the Christian community as if it was introverted or exclusive in its nature, if we're not careful. Pure religion can easily or quickly get lost in the consistency of family devotions that take place in the context of a setting like this or the framework of our own homes if they are confined to that alone. Pure religion can quickly become lost by resting in the completed work of our redemption while at the same time neglecting to step out of the finished work of our redemption as God stepped out of His work. That can happen by us neglecting to step out of our work and stepping into a very messy, ugly, confused, dirty, despairing, sinful world. Now, we can even say, listen, I am striving to keep myself undefiled. Isn't that what James says? Isn't part of pure religion keeping myself unstained? I'm doing that. That's why I do what I do. That's why I confine myself and my family to the, to our home only because, hey, we're keeping ourselves unstained from the world. But beloved, that is not true religion because it's only partial religion. True religion is both sides of the coin. Keeping myself unstained, yet being active in extending to those who are hurting who need mercy, who need help, who need grace. I believe that Jesus would say, is saying, now is the time to work. The Father's working. Now's the time to work. I don't think that we have to worry about 
breaking the Sabbath by turning the TV on on a Sunday. I think we break the Sabbath by neglecting to worship God because of the grand work of salvation. I don't think we have to worry so much about breaking the Sabbath by going to a movie because it's Sunday or any other day. I think the concern is breaking the Sabbath by neglecting to extend mercy to those who are in great need of mercy. I don't think that we need to concern ourselves with breaking the Sabbath by listening to Bach rather than to Chris Tomlin on our drive home from church on Sunday morning. I think the greater concern is breaking the Sabbath because we neglect to give our children the greater gift of belief. We don't have to worry about breaking the Sabbath by a list of things that are prohibited. Beloved, we must concern ourselves more with breaking the Sabbath by neglecting the things that God commands, like sharing the gospel and extending mercy and extending grace and offering greater belief to those who already believe and belief to those who are lost. That's our greater challenge. What's our motive? Motive is God's our Father. That's our motive. Martin Lloyd-Jones states, As Christian people, we must learn to appropriate by faith the fact that God is our Father. Christ taught us to pray, Our Father. But that was acceptable in Jesus' day. Jesus said, My Father. This eternal, everlasting God has become our Father. And the moment we realize that, everything tends to change. He is our Father, and He is always caring for us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He so loved us that He sent His only begotten Son into the world and to the cross to die for our sins. That is our relationship to God, and the moment we realize that, it transforms everything. Now's the time to work. I want to, I want to share this in closing. One of the things about our work, Jesus talked a lot in this passage about judgment. God has given him judgment. It's one of those things we look at and we step away from and we say, okay, that has no place for me. And I want to assure you that it does. One of the things about John is that he often talked about judgment as something that's happening right now not just something that's going to happen in the future, but something that's taken place now. Do you know that part of the work that we're called to plays a role in God judging? Do you know that when you share the gospel with someone, one of two things are happening? You're either softening a heart that God is going to draw this person into a relationship with Himself, or through the proclamation of the gospel, your work, and understand what the work is. The work that we're talking about doing is the work of calling, challenging, lovingly, pursuing, pleading, calling men to believe. That's the work. It's what John has described the work to be. The people come to Jesus in John 6 and say, Oh, the works of God, this is it, that you believe. So our work is to move people, call people, challenge people to believe. 
that Jesus is who Jesus says He is, that He's equal with God. And every time we share the gospel, Jesus is judging. When we share the gospel, men will believe, hearts are softened, they come to Christ. Or men don't believe. And judgment is being cast upon them and their hearts grow harder and harder and harder and judgment of eternal separation is being cast upon them. That's a grand weight. But that's the work that God's called us to. And we play a role in that. Do you know God as your Father? He loves you, cares for you as a Father, disciplines you as a Father, and a father's hand can be very soft, or a father's hand can be very strong. But God loves you as a father. Do you know him that way? You know, the flip side of, I've had very bad male figures in my life. The flip side of that is, look, I've got a father that's so great. I don't know how comfortable I feel allowing God as a father to step into my life. Maybe that's the case. God loves the Son. God loves us. The word that is used when it says that God loves the Son, it's the, it's the Greek word that means that God has set His great affection, His great passion. And I want to assure you something. That surpasses any love that any human father can give you. Okay? Do you know God as your Father? Well, I don't know if I do. Okay then man, we've got some business to deal with. Not, it's nothing I can drum up. It's nothing I'm capable of drumming up. It's not a truth I can convince myself of. It's a work that God must do because the Holy Spirit does it. Matter of fact, in John 17, Jesus said, listen, when He was praying for the disciples, this is the end of His life. He's going to the cross. He's going to leave them behind. And at the end of His life, His prayer is, look, God, I've taught them. I've invested in them. And I'm going to continue to teach them. Now, how is he going to do that if he's going away? He's going to do that through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending you the helper who's going to teach you and bring conviction to the world. So Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm going to continue to teach them through the Holy Spirit so that the love that you have shown me will be in them and I in them. Listen, this is their greatest need. They need to know as they're getting ready to go out and face persecution and confrontation and trials and troubles. I've said everything that needs to be said. I'm going to continue to invest in them so that they can be further exposed to the reality of your love. And I'll be in them through that love. That's their greatest need. Listen. If you are not consumed with the reality of God's love for you, you will not love your enemies. You will not, you will not love your friends, much less your enemies. If you are not overtaken by the love that God has for you, not the love that you have for God, you will not be able to offer forgiveness to your friends, much less your enemies. In order to do anything that God has called us to do, the greatest need that we have is that we would be infected with God's love for us, not trying to conjure up a love for Him. That's not our motivation. It will fail us every time. It is so weak and it is so feeble. And what a, such a, what, a, what a short, small goal that our motivation would be what we have to give God. 
I want to encourage you this morning. Simply, again, man, remember your spiritual heritage. Remember God is your Father. When He called you into salvation relationship slash discipleship relationship, it wasn't just to sit at His feet and take notes. It was to say, come, be with me, and as we journey together, I want to love you, I want to teach you, yeah, smack your rump a few times if necessary, but man, I am going to show you the greatest, the greatest way that He loves us. I'm going to continue to teach you and show you myself. Would you bow your heads with me, please? You know, maybe what's needed, maybe we just need to cry out to God. It's His work. I wish there was a formula that I could throw out and set in place and say, okay, if we do this, we're going to be more oriented to the way that God loves us. But that's just not the case. The Holy Spirit does it. It's His work. Maybe we just need to cry out and call out, God, we've talked about it. We've learned about it. We, we know right answers. But, but God, in order to be men and women who are defined by true religion, reveal Your love to us. And the reason that it moves us to reach outside of ourselves is because it's redemptive love. It's love that, that goes into the greatest of need and retrieves us. It's, it's, it's redemptive. It's purposeful. It's not just an affection. Although it is that. If you don't know the way and the manner and the depth and the fierceness behind the way that God loves you, ask the Holy Spirit to shed that love abroad in your hearts anew. God, would You do that for us? Would You reorient us? Would You allow us to get a glimpse of the cross, of the cross, Lord, that's, that's real? Would You awaken us to the reality of what Christ has done? in us, for us? Would You allow us to see that glimpse of the cross, that moment in time where God, You poured out Your wrath upon Your own, very own Son in order to shed Your great love abroad in our hearts? That God, You... You became man. You took on our shame. You took on our guilt. Just because You chose to love us. We're, we're not... We're not deserving. Yet You chose to love us with a great mighty love. Make it real to us, Lord. Make it real to us. And may we say with Christ in this passage, 
The Father loves me, and because He loves me, He's teaching me, and because He's teaching me, I'm about His business. Why? Because the love that He loves me with is a redemptive love, and it's crushing my very will. It's taking away my desires and His desires replaced by my desire. God, do that work in us or it won't get done. So I guess our prayer, Lord, is that You would love us in the midst of maybe confusion. Love us in the midst of maybe apathy. Love us in the midst of rebellion. Love us in the midst of retreating. But shed Your love abroad in the very depths of our hearts, God, that we would be forever changed. And would You do that for for Your glory? In Jesus' name, Amen.